I'm Abigail. And I'm Keith. And this is the Global Treasures Podcast. We'll cover different World Heritage sites each episode. These sites have been identified as having outstanding universal value. Because they have cultural and or natural significance that is so exceptional that it transcends national boundaries and is of importance to present and future generations. There are 1,199 sites across the world, with more being added every single year. We'll spend each episode exploring the history, legends, travel tips, and so much more. If this is the first time you're joining us, welcome to Season 2, where we'll explore the 45 sites that UNESCO added in 1979. If you want to support the show, please give us a review and tell your friends about us. We really appreciate it. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to the ancient city of Damascus. Okay, I know I'm normally really dramatic about this, but this time I mean it. We are in for a treat. This site is so steeped in history that you could probably do a PhD dissertation on individual buildings and single events in the city. As one of the oldest, if not the oldest, continually inhabited cities in the world, 400 or more generations of humans have written the history of Damascus, which takes us all the way back to the 11th to 9th centuries BC and was founded as a city in the 3rd millennium BC. The city boasts over 125 important monuments from all different periods of history. So the city was founded on the banks of the Barada River, about 80 kilometers inland from the Mediterranean Sea. This city is one of the oldest cities in the Middle East and was situated in an Amorite region in the middle of a major conflict zone between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Excavations at Tel Ramad, on the outskirts of the city, have shown that this area was inhabited by humans as early as 8,000 to even 10,000 BC. However, the city wasn't really documented as a really important city until the arrival of the Arameans. In the Middle Ages, the city was a center of a sophisticated and flourishing craft industry specializing in swords and lace. Each area of the city had a different specialty that it was known for. The city was also an important cultural center due to a geographical position at the crossroads of the Orient and the Occident, between Africa and Asia. It was situated on one of the branches of the famous Silk Road. The old city of Damascus is the city found inside of the original Roman walls, that were constructed around the city center. It has an incredible number of historic buildings, monuments, and religious sites. Since the city has been built up by every single passing occupation, and there were a lot of them, it has become almost impossible to excavate all of the ruins that are below eight feet from the modern level. The rich history here is evident in the historic quarter, where narrow streets and tight lanes wander between ancient buildings, lively and colorful markets, all surrounded by antiquated walls and legendary gates. Even though the history of the city expands further than just the center, UNESCO has specifically designated the Old City as a World Heritage Site. The walls, which define the border of the Old City, were built by the Romans and are roughly oval in shape and encompass an approximate area of over 212 acres. The horizontal of the old city is cut through by a Roman road, and it was called Via Recta at the time, but is now known as Bob Sharkey Street, which is actually filled with small shops 
and leads to the old Christian quarter of Bab Tuma, as well as St. Thomas's Gate. The other end has the Medhat Pasha, which is a lively and colorful covered market. This street was even referred to in the Bible in the conversion of St. Paul in Acts 9.11. The words from this verse read as follows. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's there praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. So this chapter goes on to explain that Ananias healed Saul's vision, who was persecuting Christians, baptized him in the house, and then fed him. Okay, while it may seem weird that I threw a Bible verse in here, this is just to illustrate how culturally, theologically, and historically the city has been to many different peoples and religions, and how long it has been this way. So as an example, Damascus as a city is actually mentioned in 55 different places in the Bible. The city itself is also often considered the fourth holiest site in Islam. The house we spoke about before from the Bible, where Ananias baptized Saul, is actually a site that you can visit in the city today. So the name Damascus is actually derived from the old Aramaic name Damasek, which means, well, I think it means this, a well-watered place. This city has changed hands countless times over the centuries. Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Nabataeans, Romans, the Umayyad Caliphate, Seljuk Turks, Mongols, Ottomans, French, and many, many others all once held the cities part of their empires, countries, and caliphates. Each group of rulers left behind clues to the past that became part of the city's rich history, and then they vanished. The city currently lives on, though, as the heart of the independent Syria. So when researching this city, besides falling down a rabbit hole where I spent hours doing it, I was actually able to construct an incredible timeline of events starting from 10,000 BCE and going through what I kind of limited to 78 important events that centered on the city and had wide-reaching consequences for not just Damascus, not just the Middle East, but the entire world. And these events were only the ones that I focused on for some background for the city. The history of this city is expansive, to say the least. There's simply no way that I could possibly cover all the important moments that have taken place in this city to make it what it is today. And it was difficult for me to choose the right incidents to fully summarize the city's story. Please know that I could have spoken for hours on this subject and never have run out of things to say. But Abigail let me know that I would probably lose most of you by hour two and the rest of you by hour three. So I kept it as short as possible without giving up too many of the incredible details. So as early as 10,000 BCE, the area of this city was first inhabited by humans And by the second millennium BCE, the city is first mentioned in writing. As Keith said before, this city was smack dab in the middle of two of the world's early superpowers, the Egyptians and the Hittites. By 1200 BCE, the emergence of the Sea Peoples, who were a confederacy of naval raiders centered on the city, and raids by these people helped in weakening the two arch-rivals enough that it's thought that it was a factor in the Bronze Age collapse. Between 965 BCE and 333 BCE, 
There were no less than five times where the city was conquered and then changed hands by various empires until it was captured in 333 by none other than Alexander the Great. The city was then again conquered in 112 BCE and again in 150 CE by the Roman Emperor under Trajan. The Roman Empire held the city for centuries, and in the 4th century, the famous Temple of Jupiter, which we'll talk about later, was constructed. After the fall of the Roman Empire, there were more conquests, and in 634, the city was conquered by Arabs led by Khalid ibn al-Walid. Arguably, the most famous landmark of the city was built at this time. The Great Mosque of Damascus, the Umayyad Mosque, was built in 715 by actually converting the Church of St. John the Baptist. This mosque is widely considered to be a masterpiece of early Islamic architecture and is a must-see site in the city if you're lucky enough to visit. I'll talk more about that later when we talk about the number of sites that you can see in the city. So over the next several hundred years, many important landmarks were constructed, including the Kabat al-Aqqanaza, the Citadel of Damascus, and important madrasas, as well as many, many, many more important buildings. The year 1129 saw the First Crusade, which was actually called the Damascus Crusade. This was a call to war against the Emirate of Damascus by Baldwin II of Jerusalem. The Crusaders came within six miles of Damascus, but weren't successful in sieging or conquering the city, which was the main military objective for the Crusaders. In 1148, the Second Crusade saw the Siege of Damascus, which was the final act of the Crusade, which was again unsuccessful, and only lasted four days. The leaders returned home more bitter with each other than the Muslim enemy. There would be more Crusades to follow, but the myth of the invincible Western Knight was forever broken on the walls of Damascus during the Second Crusade. Just after the end of the Second Crusade, a man named Saladin, who's often considered the most famous Muslim hero, started his meteoric and rapid rise to power. His power, political acumen, and military genius was such that his crowning achievement, and one that propelled him to great heights, is that he was able to take Jerusalem back from the Franks after 88 years. This so shocked the Christian world that a third crusade, led by Richard the Lionheart, was organized. Saladin was able to fight this much larger and better equipped army to a draw. This further cemented his legacy as a military genius. He was also widely held to be a benevolent ruler. His mausoleum was built in 1196, three years after his death, and is yet another incredibly important historical site in the Old City. It's located next to the northwestern corner of the Great Umayyad Mosque. It's breathtaking in its simplicity considering how important this man was and the impact he had on the world that lasts to this day. Over the next roughly 400 or so years, tremendous numbers of madrasas are founded and built. The great citadel of Damascus was rebuilt, and the city experienced no less than five major sieges, a bloodless coup, a construction of an important library, and countless other important events leading up to 1605. This is when the printing press was introduced to Damascus, which further changed the city in innumerable ways. It's incredible how much we've covered already, and we're just getting to the 1600s. Oh my gosh, I know. 
It pains me to continue to simply summarize the amazing history of this city, but I'll also, again, try to keep the next 300 years of history brief as well. Honestly, each of these buildings or historical events, and even the important people could each be the subject of an in-depth podcast on their own. And we're doing the whole UNESCO Old City in one episode. So it's my hope that this quick summary of this site excites your love of history and causes you to go grab a book from the library and read it. Maybe even check out some online resources. So in particular, I just want to throw one shout out. If this introduction has gotten you to want more, there is a book by Ross Burns called Damascus, A History that is highly rated and brilliantly illustrated. There are even layover maps to show you how the old city lays over the new, and vice versa. Grab it if your library has it. And even if one of you ends up doing that, I actually consider this episode a huge win. All right, getting back to it. So the next 300 years has a number of important buildings constructed, including palaces, pashas, and even a famous ice cream parlor called Bakdesh, as well as the Damascus University. I'm sure Abigail will tell you more about the must-visit ice cream parlor later during the food section, which, by the way, is my favorite section after the history. During these 300 years, the city again changed hands no less than five times. Towards the end of World War I, Arab troops led by Emir Faisal and supported by the British Armed Forces captured Damascus. Along with this army was an instrumental and legendary British commander named T.E. Lawrence, known to many of you as Lawrence of Arabia. This capture of the city ended 400 years of Ottoman rule. As an honor, Lawrence was presented with a gilt bronze wreath, originally gifted to the tomb by Emperor of Germany. This wreath was removed from the tomb of Saladin by Faisal. That wreath lies now in the Imperial War Museum in London, which, coincidentally, is actually one of my favorite places in the world to visit. Over the next 100 years up to the present, Damascus has been marked by incredible progress, political upheaval, and cultural change, culminating in an awful civil war that continues still at the time of this recording. So all this history is left an awesome, dense amount of wonderful sights behind. The old city, which boasts the 1979 UNESCO World Heritage designation, is an unbelievably rich historic site in which the importance to all peoples on earth really can't be overstated. So when visiting, you'll see sites such as the Temple of Jupiter, which was built by the Romans beginning during the rule of Augustus and completed during the rule of Constantinus II. You can walk Damascus Straight Street, also built by the Romans. You can visit the Citadel of Damascus, located in the northwest corner of the Old City, originally built from 1076 to 1078, and then rebuilt again and improved from 1203 to 1216. You can visit the Nur al-Din bin the large medieval hospital, the mausoleum of Saladin built in 1196, the incredibly beautiful Azam Palace built in 1750 as a residence for the Ottoman governor of Damascus, Maktab Anbar, which is a mid-19th century Jewish private mansion restored by the Ministry of Culture in 1976, to serve as a library, exhibition center, museum, and craft workshop. You can also stay at the Beit al-Mamluka, a 17th century Damascene house, which has been serving as a luxury boutique hotel since 2005. There are eight madrasas, 
which are institutions for higher education in the Islamic sciences, 10 mosques that are each magnificent in their own right, but together have an incredible history and religious significance. This includes the Sayyida Zainab Mosque, a destination for pilgrims, where the tomb of Zainab bint Ali, who's the granddaughter of Muhammad, is located. Six churches, including the House of St. Aninas, which, as mentioned earlier, is an underground structure that is alleged to be the remains of the home of Ananias of Damascus, where he baptized Saul, who actually later became Paul the Apostle. You can visit the seven historical gates built by the Romans, each dedicated to a different Roman god, and of course the eighth gate, the Gate of Deliverance, that was built after the Muslim conquest of the Levant, when, in the early 7th century, the Muslims conquered Damascus from the Romans after fully seven centuries of Roman rule. In addition, there are 20 hammams, built mostly started during the Umayyad era, and even some as far back as the Roman era. Incredibly, at one time, there were as many as 365 hammams operating in the city. Now, the most famous of these baths remaining is the Nur al-Din al-Shiyahid. And if all this wasn't enough, the crown jewel of Damascus is the spectacular 8th-century Great Mosque of the Umayyads, built on the site of an Assyrian sanctuary. This mosque was built on the site of a Roman temple and overlays a Christian basilica. This is also known as the Grand Mosque of Damascus and is one of the largest mosques in the entire world. It's one of the oldest sites of continuous prayer since the rise of Islam. A shrine in the mosque is said to even contain the remains of St. John the Baptist. To sum all this up, I simply cannot believe the amount of history, culture, religious importance, and beauty that this city holds. The author Ross Burns sums up this magnificently important city in a wonderful quote. Without venturing into too many fanciful what-ifs, it seems reasonable to suggest that without Damascus, neither Christianity nor Islam would exist in their current forms as great world faiths. No truer words have ever been said. I couldn't agree more. So now that we summarized, and I mean summarized, the history of one of the oldest and most important cities in human civilization, and we are all excited to visit, let's talk about how we can actually get there. So, Abigail, I know from our pre-production that you are lamenting that this is a tough place to visit. For the traveler who just must go, how does one get to the city? I hope that there's a way because the research for this city has put it smack dab squarely on my must-visit list. Yeah, so this site is unique in that while you can technically travel there, it's nearly impossible to find a flight that will take you directly to Damascus due to the ongoing civil war. So you're probably going to have to find a flight that goes to Beirut in order to make your way to Damascus. That being said, I still want to share information in case you plan on traveling there. If you can find a flight, you'll want to fly into Damascus International Airport, which is 12 miles away from the city. I highly recommend you check the airline website daily if you've booked a trip because the airport has historically shut down for up to a month, again due to this unrest and conflict. In terms of the best times of the year to visit, the cost of the hotels, restaurants, and museums don't seem to fluctuate, so I would say consider using the weather as your guide. 
January does get chilly, which surprised me, but May through October can be very hot, anywhere from the mid-80s Fahrenheit up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. As we mentioned before, there are over 125 incredible things to do in this city, but the notable things I'll highlight beyond what Keith mentioned before are the National Museum of Damascus, Roman Theater of Basra, the Military Museum, and if you love football like I do, the Syrian Premier League calls this city home, so catch a game. Keith also mentioned the hammams before. I'll make one note for travelers. It's our understanding that only men are allowed to visit these baths within the city. There are hammams outside the city that women can visit. I'm not entirely sure of this, but it looks like some hammams have specific hours and specific days that each gender can visit. So as you can imagine, it would be wise to look into this if you're planning on going. This city is also famous for the multitudes of craftsmen and artisans located throughout. As you plan your trip, keep in mind that the main language is Arabic, so you may want to see if you can get a tour in your native language. The exhibitions in museums may be in English and Arabic, but I wouldn't count on it. Also, some of the tourist attractions I might have pointed out have unfortunately been destroyed or damaged by shelling. So even though some of these sites don't have websites, try to do your research or read reviews before physically going there because hours may have changed or, again, they might not be open. All right, so that's kind of heartbreaking to hear. So going back to what you said about traveling here, I know that the world watched horrified as this country was torn apart in a civil war. While I don't want to lighten the seriousness of the war and its impact on the city, nor would I want to do that for the people of Syria, I'd actually like to pivot to something that takes us away from the war and always makes me happy, and that's the food. I can only imagine that the culinary history of the city and the number of different cultures that have influenced the architecture must have also influenced the food. So what dishes would someone likely encounter when they get go out and get a bite to eat in Damascus? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that despite so many major hotels and restaurants closing, there were still over a hundred places to dine out in the city, from food carts to fancy sit-down restaurants, per my research. Some of the more classic dishes you'll find are falafel with hummus, kib, which is bulgur wheat and ground lamb, and for dessert, you have to visit Bakdash, which is an ice cream parlor Keith mentioned before. It's well known for booza, which is a frozen dessert made with milk, cream, resin from the mastic tree, and orchid flower. Yes, like flour made from the orchid flower. This gives what would otherwise just be basic ice cream an almost chewy texture, like along the lines of saltwater taffy, or airhead candy. It also stays frozen longer, so you don't have to scarf it down before it melts in the heat. Whoa, that sounds amazing. Actually, I thought that was pronounced kibba, so I guess it's just kib. Anyway, I'm sure that there could also be a full podcast just on the culinary delights of this city. All right, as much as I hate to leave the talk of food after such a brief visit here, this city that is so ancient has seen over 400 generations living it. There must be some stories of hauntings, paranormal activities, and legends, not to mention conspiracy theories. 
so I didn't get to chat with you about this in pre-production. This will be as much an education for me as for the listeners. So I know you must have had a tough time picking one or two to point out. So what did you find? I found two things that piqued my interest in particular. The first is that people claim to have seen a civitherm. And a civitherm was a prehistoric giraffid and was the largest even-toed mammal of all time, though this claim is debated. They're considered to be like the ancestor or extinct cousin, if you will, of what we now know as the giraffe or okapi. All right, I'm a scientist, and I know I'm a chemist, but I haven't heard of an okapi. What is that? An okapi? Oh, you can rely on National Geographic Girl to tell you that. So, an okapi is a medium-sized animal that's endemic to Central Africa, and half of its body looks like a zebra. It's white with black stripes. But don't let that confuse you. It's the only living relative of the giraffe. Yeah, so going back to what I was saying before, the civitherm was believed to have gone extinct eight to 6,000 years ago, but many believe they've sighted this creature in or on the outskirts of the city. Supposedly, it looks like a shorter, thicker giraffe versus the ones we know today. Of course, there are no photos, and with something supposedly so large, I don't see how it could even be on the outskirts of uh, such a large city without being seen more frequently or photographed. But if someone can prove this, I'm flying there tomorrow because giraffes are my favorite animal. Okay, I actually happen to know that you love giraffes, so this must have been really cool for you to research. All right, so we covered larger animals that were supposedly on the outskirts, but not one person with a cell phone is ever photographed. Cool. What about any other legends or ghost stories in the city? Sure. So another thing that kept coming up in my research over and over was this abandoned house in the center of Damascus. No one knows the story behind it, like what happened to the family, but it's been abandoned for many, many years. It's dilapidated and covered in graffiti. But people who pass by claim they hear voices coming from inside, and when they peer in, no one's there. And the windows actually had to be bolted shut because they would frequently and inexplicably open by themselves. I don't know if I'm convinced, but it is a creepy, ominous-looking building. If you Google it and find the address, I wouldn't enter if I were you. Whoa. This open site in a valuable old city? It must be really haunted to be left alone. That is some valuable real estate. I would imagine that somebody would be crazy enough to scoop that up. Okay, moving on. We always try to speak about the challenges of keeping these sites safe for future generations. On this site, I'm actually afraid to ask, especially considering what is going on in the country during the time of this recording, but we have to. So what are some of the issues, challenges, and plans to keep the old city safe? I don't even know where to start with this one. So, like we've said over and over, there are 125 sites of notable importance within the city, so I can't touch on them all. But I'll try to cover the most significant steps being taken to alleviate the damage that's been done over the years. So, in Damascus, there has been significant destruction due to ongoing armed conflict, and has been on the World Heritage Sites in Danger list since 2013. 
there's been a lack of maintenance of the sewage system due to this conflict. And not only is it disgusting and unsanitary, but this has a domino effect. So for example, some of the ancient city walls have collapsed due to the lack of maintenance and water leakage from this damaged sewer network, which couldn't be repaired because maintenance workers were denied access to water networks. Another barrier that's been faced is local workers not understanding restoration techniques. So conservation requires the passing of skills around traditional techniques and knowledge for how to upkeep these buildings with specific materials. You can't just substitute any type of stone or wood, because if the surface texture is different from the materials that were historically used, you diminish the integrity of the building. With people having fled the city at an alarming rate over the years, they lost many specialists who know how to take care of these monuments. Adding to what I was talking about before, specialists are having difficulty being able to access the site or being able to get those necessary materials to the site to make said repairs. Historic preservationists are also actively moving artwork and artifacts such as these to other museums throughout the country and the world to prevent anything else from getting destroyed. And that part is fantastic. I appreciate a proactive approach. Finally, they're working on educating the local population on simple safety practices. For example, the Ottoman bank was damaged in a fire in 2016 because people were keeping flammable objects in areas that weren't necessarily well ventilated. Hopefully, these small measures will continue to allow them to make progress in preserving the culture of this incredible city. Wow. So the research for this episode, and then talking about it, really makes me want to find out even more. So I'd love to research the heck out of this, but I might need to wait until I have more time, because I'm going to go crazy researching for our next episode, Ancient Thebes, with its necropolis in Egypt. I can't wait for you to join us on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Global Treasures Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.